Welcome to the online ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. My name is Tommy Allen, and I am the lead pastor. So today we will be continuing on in our series on the Bible. Um, every story whispers his name. And if, you, if we told you before that we're actually following along uh, the template given in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And really what this does is it just shows us how every smaller story in the whole Bible um, points to the bigger story in the Bible, which ultimately is about Jesus. So with all of that said, I thought I would open our time this morning by reading Psalm 8. Some of you know Psalm 8 from, I don't know if it's Sandy Patty or one of, you know, Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? We're not singing it this morning. I'm going to read it. If you want to read along with me and be participatory, that's fine. Or if you just want to consider it a call to worship, that's fine as well. So hear the word of God from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I pray that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, as I told you, we're starting uh, this series. We started last week with basically an introduction to the Bible. And if you remember last week, I told you that the Bible is basically um, what it's not. It's not just a rule book and it's not just a book of heroes that give us an example to follow. And if we follow the right example and do good, God would love us. That really the Bible is a big story. It's an overarching story. And it's a story ultimately about Jesus, but it's also the story about us. It's a story about what God has done in the person of his son to save us from our sins. And the whole Bible is about that. And I, I hope you see that this morning. This morning, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, basically, a couple verses and chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, on one hand, it's the most read chapter in the whole Bible, I'm sure, because I know a ton of people, believers and unbelievers, who said, hey, I'm going to start reading the Bible. And where do they start? Page 1, Genesis 1. So a lot of people read <laughs> Genesis 1, 1. I don't know how many people have gotten much further than yeah, Genesis 12, 13, 14. But nonetheless, um, it's also one of the most controversial chapters in the whole Bible. And it's controversial for this. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it for a second. And the question is this. Do you personally, whoever is hearing this, do you believe that when the the you read Genesis 1, and it talks about God creating all these days, that the days mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 are 24-hour literal days. Do you believe that? That the, the, the days mentioned in Genesis 1 are literal. That It means 24 hours. That's it. 
Now, I know just by saying that, <laughs> I've caused some of you, maybe a lot of you, to have pinecone tail, right? What is pinecone tail? Well, you know, I have this new kitten, Juniper, and the funniest thing that she does is whenever she gets either scared or when she gets angry or when she's attacking this little stuffed duck that we have, she sort of arches her back and backs up. And while she's doing that, her tail sticks straight in the air and it puffs out like this huge pine cone. And so you can tell that she is either upset or something is going on because that pine cone tail is just sort of following her everywhere around. Some of you have pine cone tail right now. I just know it. <laughs> now, why do you have pine cone tail? Because some of you are very scientifically oriented. And when I say, do you believe in 24-hour creation days? You say, absolutely not. There's no way. Science can't prove that. There's, it just couldn't happen. The earth is billions of years old. Whatever it is you say. On the other hand, some of you are more fundamentalists. And you're saying, absolutely, yes, right? How, you, you know, the, there's no way. If you believe the Bible, you have to believe that it's 24-hour days. If God said it, I believe it. That settles it, right? Some of you, I know, believe that. Uh, in fact, some people think it's such a serious issue to believe 24-hour creation days. I've had more than one person over the course of my life say, Tommy, you know how you can tell if someone's a Christian? They're from the South. You can tell from my voice. Um, you can tell if someone's Christian, just ask them what they believe about creation days. Now, of course, I would always say, usually you can tell someone's Christian by if they trust Jesus or not, but that's none of my business. Why am I bringing this up? What if I told you that it didn't matter? What if I told you that the whole gospel isn't dependent upon whether or not those are 24-hour literal creation days? And what if I told you that it really didn't matter to scientists either? You see, the reason we tend to fight about this and the reason that we're so sort of now, polarized about this subject, about the days of creation, is that we tend to look at Genesis chapter 1 and impose upon it a scientific worldview. Right? Both the scientist and the fundamentalist imposes on Genesis 1 a scientific worldview when we try to make Genesis 1 fit basically what we already believe. In other words, even the fundamentalist believes in, in, a, in scientific stuff, and so they try and impose that, which means this has to be 24 hours. Then the scientist says it can't be 24 hours. And you know who else does the same thing about with that? Who, who else imposes things upon Genesis to make it say what they want it to say, especially chapter one? Racists do that. Hmm. What do I mean by that? Racists, remember God creates things and he says they created them according to its own kind. Like I've heard racists say before, that means that different races shouldn't intermix. Vegans do it. Right? It said that God gave every plant of the field for food. And I've heard had very zealous vegans say, hey, Genesis 1 says that we shouldn't be eating meat. And so therefore, now what both of those people do is they sort of disregard the rest of the Bible. Of course, there's creation scientists and all of that. What if we stop doing this? What if we stop doing this? If we stop doing this, we might find out that Genesis 1 isn't about or even primarily about creation. It's about something else. In other words, there's moments of creation in Genesis 1. But what if it was about something else? We find out by asking, the, the way we find that out is by asking um, what for what purpose was it written? In other words, why was Genesis 1 written in the first place? Did it Was there purpose behind it? When you just dive in and say, I think it's 24 hours or it couldn't be this or it couldn't be that, 
most most of us are actually skipping the big question, which is what was the purpose of Genesis 1 and the whole book of Genesis in the first place? Well, I'm going to tell you the purpose, in my humble opinion. Um, the purpose really is to give Israel and us the first whisper of the big story, right? The gospel. And it's written to give hope in the midst of chaos, right? It was written to Israel probably when they're either in Egypt in bondage or when they were just in the wilderness. And it was to persuade them that what they were doing was the right thing, that God had done something in them and he would continue doing something in them. So we're going to look at Genesis 1 today. And I promise you, it's going to be a little different than typically what you hear. Um, we're going to look at three things. The three things that we're going to consider this morning is number one, that God intervenes into our chaos. The second thing that we're going to consider is that God orders our chaos. And the third thing we're going to consider is that God ends our chaos. So in other words, God intervenes into our chaos. God brings order to our chaos and God will end our chaos. First thing, God intervenes into our chaos. Let me read you the first five verses. Yet instead of reading through the whole long thing, I'm going to read it in chunks. So verses one through five says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So what is happening here? If you're paying attention, as you read the book of Genesis, there should be some dissonance in your mind between verses 1 and verses 2. Right. So notice verse 1. It says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Done. And then in verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the words there, where it says without form or formless and void, the words there in Hebrew are the words tohu and bohu, and with, with an and, which is vu. So it's tohu vabohu. And what tohu vabohu means in Hebrew is basically um, desert and wasteland, um, or it can mean bondage and oppression. In, in other words, God is, looks over, he creates heavens and earth. So either he did that and the earth was formless and void, the earth was a wilderness and, and uh, oppressed or in some kind of bondage, or Verse 1 is just sort of the title. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the rest is a story. Either way, when you get to verse 2, it should cause some dissonance because verse 2 starts out with what is nothing less than chaos, right? It's tohu vabohu, without form and void, and darkness, vahoshek. All three of those things, when you take them together, they are how the people in the ancient Near East would have described chaos. In fact, when you ask Israel and you read the book of Exodus and it describes their experience in Egypt, their experience in Egypt was tohu vabohu vahoshek. It was formless and void and dark. And basically, what does God do in the midst of this chaos? This is some primordial chaos 
that's using the same language that he has used to describe Israel. And what God does in the primordial chaos is he intervenes and he intervenes one time with light. Notice it says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the earth and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now in Hebrew, that's just one word. It's as if the, the earth is sort of formless and void and chaotic and whatever that means in that verse. And God looks down and says, light. <laughs> it's like when you try to get your kid's attention and it's like, hey, and everyone's quiet all of a sudden. That's what God did. He intervened into chaos with light. And he intervened into chaos with light with by the power of his word. He just said it, bam, and it happened. You see, God intervenes into the original creation with the power of his word and light happens and everything moves on from there. Now, what does this have to do with Israel? So you have to, if you're going to ask the purpose, this was written first to Israel. What does it have to do with them? Was well, I mentioned before, Israel's uh, description of Israel in Egypt was formless and void and dark. In other words, Israel's uh, experience in Egypt was chaos. It was bondage. It was oppression. And how did God, what did God do with Israel? You see, God intervened into creation through the power of his word. He intervened into to Israel's chaos with his word through a man, Moses. In other words, he intervened in, into to Israel's existence in Egypt through the power of his word through a man named Moses. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, Remember, we always think of Charlton Heston going into Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. If you've seen it, you remember it. And if you haven't seen it, you ought to watch it. But what we tend to forget is what prefaces those words, let my people go. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, he goes on behalf of God and says, thus says the Lord, let my people go. That God is the one who will deliver Israel through the, by the power of his word through this man, Moses. That Moses comes to be a spokesperson for man to bring uh, intervention into the chaos, the bondage, the oppression of Israel. And he does it. And Israel exodus happens and Israel is released from their bondage because of this man, Moses. Now, what's, does it have anything to do with us? Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Well, of course it does, or I wouldn't be preaching to you. Um, that if God intervened into the original primordial chaos of creation with the power of his word, and he intervened into to Israel's chaos with the power of his word through a man, for us, he intervenes into our chaos with the power of his word, who is a man. You follow me? God intervenes into the chaos. Our lives are defined by chaos. Our lives are not the way they are supposed to be. And if your own personal life isn't the way it's supposed to be, just look around you. Right? You look outside and, and everything is in chaos. Everyone's wearing masks. Everyone's worried about politics. Everyone's worried about rioters. Everyone's arguing about race. Everyone's, everything seems to be, this is the most chaotic time maybe in my adult lifetime. But even on a personal level, God intervenes into the chaos of our lives with the power of his word, who is a man. Let me read to you John chapter one. If you remember in John chapter one, says this, starting at verse one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John's gospel likens the coming of Jesus to God's intervention in original chaos. That just as God intervened into chaos, bam, and brought light to chaos, light into darkness, and darkness didn't overcome it. So Jesus came to bring himself, his light, into our lives, and it will not be overcome as well. If you need more on that, remember what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Jesus says, um, at some point, he just stands up and says, I am the light of the world. If anyone comes after me, follows after me, he will not walk in darkness, that Jesus calls himself that light, just the same light that intervened in the chaos of creation is the same light that can come and intervene in the chaos of our hearts. And so where does that take us? Well, that takes us next to um, God's intervention into the fact that God orders our chaos. You see, when you think about it, Jesus comes and says, I've come to intervene into your chaos. I've come to dispel your darkness. And becoming a Christian means you've embraced that, right? Becoming a Christian means when Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. Um, I have come. I've given myself for you. I've come to shine my light into your heart to take all of your sins away. Uh, being a Christian means you've embraced that. And the problem is, is that we we forget that when Jesus comes, he not only just um, intervenes into our chaos, but he begins to bring order to it. And the, the problem with bringing order to chaos is sometimes it's painful. I mean, you know, um, Judy and I moved to our current house probably eight or nine years ago. And when we moved there, I moved, I had a shop that was like a three car garage size shop almost and it moved into like a half size car garage and we just shoved everything in there and everything was in there for years and then a couple weeks ago Judy basically had been pushing me for a while to to clean out the garage and she would clean out my wood shop so I could actually do something and I tell you what it was the most painful three days of my life just going through every single drawer and going through every single stick of wood and deciding whether I wanted it or not. It was painful. And yet at the end of it, I was so excited. I have more room than I know what to do with. In fact, I started buying wood. I started to make things. I'm actually excited. But the process of going from chaos to order was painful. It's the same way in the Christian life. It was the same way at creation. So consider that fact that God not only intervenes into chaos, but he actually starts bringing order to chaos. Notice what it says in verse six. It says, and God said, this is after the first day, it says, and God said, let there be expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate water from water. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse of the waters and that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. 
And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit and which is their seed each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day, right? You get the picture. God is taking, you know, so so he intervened with light and then he began to separate the sea from the dry land. And then he began to bring forth vegetation. And then he separated the day from the night and all these kinds of things. He's bringing order to creation. Most of what happens in Genesis chapter one is not just creation, 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 creation. It's creation and then God bringing order to it. It's actually intervention, God bringing order to it. So what does that have to do with us? What's that have to do with, with anything? Notice that God first intervenes and then he brings order in Genesis chapter one. And now I want you to think about how Israel might have read Genesis chapter 1. So Israel hears that God separated the light from the darkness, and they hear next that he separated the sea from the dry land. And and at that point, I would hope, or I would imagine that they would go, whoa, right? God, that's what God did for us. It's exactly what God did for us. And you're thinking, what are you talking about, Tommy? If you were in Israel, you would know that God not only intervened in chaos, but he kept working to bring order to it until the job was done. So I want you to consider Exodus 14 for a minute here. In Exodus chapter 14, what happens is this. In Exodus 14, Israel has has escaped from Egypt and they are on the run and they've come right to the edge of the Red Sea and they can hear the chariots and Pharaoh bearing down on them from behind. And as they hear them and as they see them and as they get nervous, of course, they do what Israelites often do and they start complaining to Moses, right? In verse 11 of chapter 14, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done bringing us out here, out to Egypt, out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. (laughs) Zip it. Then further on, when the Egyptians come and God tells Moses that he's going to deliver them, it says in verse 19, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud of darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry grounds, the water being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Did you, did you catch that? Right? The same thing that happened in creation, that God separated the light from the darkness and the sea from dry land, he did for Israel as they were right after he intervened in their chaos. He intervened in their chaos, and then he began to bring order. He separated He separated the light from the darkness, right? He's with the, the, Egypt was on the dark side and Israel was on the light side, and then he separated the sea from dry land, and Israel passed through on the dry land. That he intervened in their chaos, he was finishing the job, if you will, and yet it was often Difficult. You see, God not only intervenes in our chaos to 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 make us better, but He also brings us brings order to our chaos in order to finish the job. In other words, I'm talking about us. In other words, God does the same thing for us as He did for Israel, as He did at original creation. In original creation, God intervened one time with light, and then He brought order, ultimately culminating in rest. What does God do for Israel? He intervenes into their chaos one time, then he brings order ultimately unto rest. And what does God do for us? He intervenes into our lives one time, and then he brings order leading up to rest. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've been around church very long, that one-time intervention, we tend to use the word justification, right? Justification is a one-time act where, where we we exercise faith in Jesus and God imputes to us or credits to us the righteousness of Christ. He imputes to Jesus or credits to him all of our sin. One time, that will never change. If you have trusted Jesus genuinely, he has taken your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west and will never ever hold them against you. But wait, there's more. That's justification. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. And in sanctification, it's where he brings order to your life, that he begins to change you. One of the biggest mistakes I made when I was a Christian is I had a pretty hard life growing up as a kid. And then I became a Christian. I was like, woo, it's all done now. The hardness is over. And I had no idea that the hardness was just beginning. You see, because if God really cares about me and he really cares about the the chaos inside me as well as the chaos outside of me, that he's going to begin bringing order to that. And sometimes I don't like that and it's painful. Remember Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite quotes, she says, "All all of human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful. That God brings order into our lives by way of sanctification, and that is painful. And the biggest struggle that Israel had and the biggest struggle that we have is believing that God is going to finish the job. In other words, God is bringing order, and that order is often painful. You know, C.S. Lewis likened it to surgery, that it doesn't feel good. And we think when the surgery is going on that God hates us. When in fact, he might be removing a malignancy. We think that when God is, when something is being removed from our life, it's because God doesn't like us or God's not thinking about us or God doesn't care. When in fact, it might be because it's the most loving thing to do. 
And what we really fail at is we fail at believing that God is going to finish the job. In other words, we believe that he intervened and we're going to, we believe that, okay, he's going to bring order, but really is there any purpose to it? And is he really going to finish the job? And that's where the text goes next, right? Is that we can be certain that in the midst of all of our chaos and the pandemic and the politics and everything that God is moving things to their appointed end. In fact, that leads to the last point, that God not only intervenes into to our chaos, he not only brings order to our chaos, but in fact, God will end our chaos, our bondage and our oppression, right? On one, on one hand, Jesus has taken everything and it's done, right? On the other hand, there's a, there, there's a culmination still coming. In other words, we are saved one time for all time, but we will also be saved in the future from all of this current chaos in which God is bringing order right now, that, that everything is going someplace. So notice the, how God will end our chaos. Notice chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. You see, the culmination of creation, Genesis chapter one, the culmination is rest. God rests from creation. He makes everything and he talks back everything and he says it is good. And next week we'll talk more about the creation of humanity and where that ultimately ended up. Um, I'm intentionally skipping over that part today, but God created everything and it was perfect and it was good. It was shalom, the way things are supposed to be. And he rested. And just like creation goes from chaos to order to rest, so Israel was supposed to do that, right? They were in chaos and in bondage and God intervened. And then he brought order to them and, and he began to move them in that direction. And the first generation of Israel didn't enter into the rest. Remember, the, the, for Israel, the promised land was rest, Canaan. And the, the struggle that they constantly had, which was manifested in their complaining, was that they didn't believe that God was going to finish the job. In other words, they knew that he'd taken them out of Egypt, and they knew that they were in the wilderness, and they knew that they were being uh, sharpened, if you will, or they were, they were being sanded down, How whatever metaphor you want to use. God was bringing order to their lives and to their hearts. He was giving them the law. He was doing all these kind of things. But what they really struggled with was whether he was going to finish the job, whether he's actually going to get them into the land of Canaan. Now, honestly, you and I have the same problem. I mean, it, here's how I can tell. If you don't really believe that God is going to finish the job, the extent to which you complain shows the extent to which you really don't believe that God's going to finish the job, that you really don't believe the gospel, frankly, and the extent that you worry and the extent that you fret over things. And the extent that you look out and you say, oh, my gosh, what if so-and-so wins the presidency? Or, oh, my gosh, what if so-and-so doesn't, doesn't lose the presidency? I know some of you are thinking, at the end of the day, God is moving all this chaos to his own appointed ends. And he promised he would finish the job. Just as a creation, he intervened 
and he brought order and he rested with Israel. He intervened. He brought order and he brought them ultimately rest with you and me. He intervened. He brings order and ultimately he will bring rest. Let me read you what happened with Israel from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, the author is talking about how basically no one in Israel entered their the, the the real rest, but definitely the first generation didn't enter the rest. Let me read the verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, he's talking about Israel, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, the promise of the gospel, the promise to Israel was, trust me and I will take you from Egypt into the promised land. And they did not. They believed the first part, but they didn't believe the second part. Believing the second part is just as important. They didn't enter into their rest. I mean, the first generation didn't enter into the Canaan at all. None of them did. They, they just simply walked in the wilderness for 40 years. The second generation did, but ultimately they really didn't completely enter their rest either. Notice Hebrews 9, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11 says this. So there remains, he says that, that even with Joshua, the people didn't really enter the rest. So there remains now a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now he's talking about us. For whoever had entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience he's talking about, by the way, is simply unbelief. Martin Luther said that. He said the whole book of Romans, but the biggest sin is basically unbelief, that we fail to believe the gospel. Now, a lot of us believe that God started this work, but how many of us believe that he who began a good work is going to finish it in the day of Christ Jesus, right? That's Philippians 1, 6. You see, we how do we enter God's rest? We enter God's rest, according to Hebrews here. We enter God's rest by resting from our works, just as God did his. In other words, Jesus has done everything it takes to, to mend our relationship with God. Jesus has done everything it takes to restore shalom that was violated in the garden. We'll talk about that last week. Jesus has done everything it takes in order for you to, to have a relationship with God and to grow and to make it to the end. And what it means to enter his rest is to rely on that. Are you going to rest in Christ? Are you going to actually have faith that his works are enough? You see, we built to, to believe in Christ means that in Christ, God has intervened into your chaos, that, that you are sinful and broken and in, uh, in bondage to your own sin. And you believe that Jesus has intervened into that, that you heard the gospel and, and the, the chains fell off and the, the lights came on and suddenly you understood, you got it. And you also believe that not only is Jesus, did he, did he break the chains, but that he also is going to bring order to your chaos. And sometimes that that is going to be painful. In fact, most of the time, I would say it's going to be painful if you're going to be honest, if you're going to let him have all the chaos and garbage and brokenness inside you. But it also means you believe that he will finish the job. 
that someday, ultimately, all this, that everything is happening is working its way to its appointed end, and it will be a good end for you. So that what it means to believe, finally, it just means that Jesus has intervened into your chaos. Jesus is ordering your chaos, and that Jesus ultimately will finish the job in you. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that as we continue to look at this book of Genesis and the whole Bible, that we continue to see how Jesus is the one who helps us make sense of it all, that he is the one um, who pulls it all together, even as as he he is his name is whispered here in Genesis chapter one. He is the, the one who delivers us. Uh, from our chaos and orders our chaos and will finish the job. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, if you are a member of New Hope or you benefit from our ministry and you'd like to give during this time is, is in church, we're meeting is a time when we'd sing the doxology and we would uh, receive the offering. So if you would like to participate in that, you can find information either in the comments section or just in the description section of this video. And I thought I would end us with a profession of faith. And the profession of faith uh, comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question 17. You've, you've probably, if you've listened to me very often, know that I, I love the Westminster Standards, the Confession of Faith, Larger and Smaller Catechism. But my favorite of all three of those is the Larger Catechism, because it really just expands all the stuff in there. And so the question this morning from the Larger Catechism, and it's question 17, asks this. How did God create human beings? Answer. After he made all other creatures, God created humans, male and female. He formed the body of the man from dust of the ground and the woman from the rib of the man. He endowed them with living, reasoning, and immortal souls made in his own image with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. God wrote his law on their hearts and gave them the ability to obey it. Along with their dominion over all the creatures, they also had potential to fall. Amen. That last line there, along with dominion over all the creatures, they also had potential to fall. Spoiler alert. They do. We're going to talk about that next week. <laughs> Let me send you uh, from this virtual place with God's benediction. I remind you that the Lord your God is with you and the Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love and the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Amen and amen.